Welcome to Front and Center, from political battlefields to cooperative playing fields, where awakening people from all sides come together to help write our new story and build upon America's sacred purpose, unity and diversity, while expressing their individual freedom in the context of sacred community. Now, here are your hosts, Michael Maxenny and Steve Behrman. Center, from political battlefields to cooperative playing fields. Hello, I'm Michael Maxenti. Today, my partner Steve and I are opening yet another extremely important door so that we can answer the question, how do we get government on the side of the people? Today, we have invited Marianne Williamson to discuss her presidential campaign. I would like to ask my partner Steve Berriman to introduce our distinguished guest, as Steve has known Marianne for many years. Steve, would you introduce Marianne, please? Thank you so much, Michael. Welcome, Marianne. You know, what I've always appreciated about Marianne Williamson is her commitment both to individual spiritual awakening and also uh, societal transformation, starting with her first book, uh, you know, the Return to Love, which we actually need to do, and then through The Healing of America and more recently The Politics of Love. On March 4th, which is the perfect day to March 4th with a new campaign, she announced she's running for president as a Democrat. So uh, welcome, Marianne, once again. And what I want to ask you to start off with is, you know, we talked uh, right after the 2020 election, uh, early in 2021, we did a, uh, an interview on my WikiPolitiki podcast, and you confided how difficult, maybe even abusive, it was to be subject to the kind of uh, slings and arrows and distortions, and that was just from your own side, right? So please tell us what has changed internally and externally that makes you willing to go through this again? Well, I don't know that so much has changed externally. If anything, uh, I mean, the, the viciousness is already coming at me, the cannonballs, it's a, it's a dirty business. I think what's changed internally, though, is that I have some emotional antibodies from last time. Um, I don't fall apart inside, oh my God, how could they lie about me? I know they do. I, I, you know what I mean? It's like that's what they do, a scorpion stings. So that has changed inside. On the outside, um, two things, hopefully. Hopefully I can put together a campaign that is powerful enough to take on these turbulent seas of what they throw at you. Um, and also I, I hope that other people are seeing through it more. Uh, are seeing what's really going on here. I think a lot of Americans are recognizing how deeply corrupt our system is. There are billions and billions and billions of dollars to be made uh, on the status quo. The status quo is corporate-backed rather than people-centered, uh, people as Michael was saying before. So Lincoln had said on the battlefield at Gettysburg that the men who died for the Union 
that battle having really turned the tide, so it looked like, you know what, the Union is going to win this thing, which wasn't always true during the war. And he said that they had given their last full measure of devotion so that a government of the people, by the people, and for the people would not perish from the earth. Well, it's perishing now because we are now a government of the corporations, by the corporations, and for the corporations. Now, I'm saying that, and I'm saying it not that everybody doesn't know it in a way, but, you know, it's always been true in my career. I've heard people say this for years. Marianne says everything the rest of us are saying, but she says it when the lights and the cameras and the microphone is on. I have that kind of mischievous part of me that I say out loud what everybody's kind of just whispering among ourselves. So the system does not appreciate that. The system doesn't mind if we say it on podcasts. The system doesn't mind if we say it in books. Although if you look at something like the governor of Florida, it's so interesting. He suggested the other day that anybody who writes a blog about the governor should have to register with the state. So we're now getting at a point with book banning, tell, taking books off the shelves, telling bloggers to register with the state. My God, you'd think it was, you know. Um, we're already moving into such a suppression of voices. And then if you come in and you say, actually, not only am I going to say it, but I'm going to say it on a presidential, uh, pl on the platform of a presidential campaign, that is not appreciated by the status quo. This, the, the political and economic status quo is institutionally resistant to the only, to allowing a powerful voice among the only corner of society that could actually override that nonsense, and that's the people. So I get it. I've always gotten it, actually. What I'm hoping is different now is that other people will get it and then move in to support uh, my campaign in this case, but whatever forces they feel are trying to push back and repudiate that basically aristocratic paradigm that now controls our government. Marianne, I uh, greatly appreciate the way you do speak uh, out and when the camera and the lights are on. Uh, and I, that's one of the reasons why I was attracted to you when I was introduced by a mutual friend to you back in 2014 <clears throat> and went up to Malibu and listened to you. And I said, and I thought to myself uh, how much I really liked your willingness to speak out and say what people think. You just, uh, and I know you've been attacked uh, because they want to keep the, the conversation about issues that they can create about background and crap like that. But because we don't want the conversation to be about the not just the issues, which one of the things I want to get into with you in a few minutes is you've got some great issues you go into on your website. You've got 16 different issues there that you go into and three primary ones of which I want to delve into a little bit in a minute. But they don't want to talk about the issues. They want to make it about other background things to keep the focus off the issues. Uh, and so I greatly appreciate that. And uh, they don't want us talking about the most important overriding thing, which is the question of how are we going to govern ourselves? How are we going to allow ourselves to be governed? Do we need monarchs and kings and dictators and rulers? Or are we the people going to come around to answer that question that our nation was founded on? Are we capable of self-government? Uh, they don't want that conversation. They want us thinking only in terms of issues based on societal differences and economic differences. But today you wrote something in an email that I wanted to 
to <clears throat> the audience's attention, and it was regarding the the uh, SBB bankruptcy. <laughs> I really appreciate it. One of the things you said here is, why aren't we rescuing the one in four Americans with medical debt when we could eradicate that travesty with universal health care? Why aren't we rescuing people carrying ridiculous college loans, given that until the 1960s, college tuition, tuition was practically free throughout the country? It simply isn't right that our government is so quick to bail out Wall Street while Main Street struggles year after year. Can you elaborate on that? Because that's right to the point. During the 1970s, the average American worker uh, had decent benefits and could afford a home and could afford a car and could afford a yearly vacation and could send their kids to college. That was the 1970s. Since that time, there has been a $50 trillion transfer of wealth from the bottom 90% of Americans to the top 1%. And the claim of trickle-down economics, neoliberal economics, et cetera, was that if you moved all that money into the hands of the stockholders, the hands of the CEOs, they would be job creators, and all of that money would trickle down into the hands of the peons down on the floor. Well, not only did it not lift all boats, as they promised, it actually has left millions and millions without even a life vest. We have one-third of American voters, uh, excuse me, American uh, workers who live on less than $15 an hour, can't even find a place to live. We have 68,000 Americans who die from lack of health care every year. We have 18 million Americans who cannot afford to fulfill the prescriptions that their doctors give them. We have one in four Americans living in medical debt. We have half of our seniors living on less than $25,000 a year. We have 12 million hungry children. And this is the thing. We are the richest country in the world. So when you look at things like universal health care, tuition-free college and tech schools, which we had before the 1960s, when you look at free child care, when you look at uh, paid medical leave after the birth of a child, when you look at a, at a decent minimum wage so that it's a living wage, those are considered moderate positions in any other advanced democracy. The American people have been played. It's as simple as that. The American people have been trained to expect too little. The American people have been told that those things are complicated. They're actually not complicated, they're corrupt. If you have the insurance companies and the pharmaceutical companies and big oil companies and big food and big agriculture and big chemical companies and gun manufacturers and defense contractors and their lobbyists exerting such undue financial influence on Congress, then Congress is not representing the people. The congressmen are not representing their, the, the well-being, the safety, health, and well-being of their constituents. They are representing the, um, the short-term profits of their donors. That is the essence of corruption. Now, at this point, we're always playing whack-a-mole. We're always playing, well, maybe, maybe we can fix it over here. Maybe we can fix it over there. We have to address the underlying cancer here. We have to address the fact that because of this undue financial influence, you've got 20% of Americans, you've got 20% of us for whom the economy is fine, basically. But the problem is, it's like an enchanted economic island where 20% of us are doing, got into the club, and the club's a good place. 
but it is surrounded by a vast sea of economic despair. When you have 64,000 people living paycheck to, six, I'm sorry, 64% of Americans living paycheck to paycheck, 60% of Americans uh, unable to absorb uh, a, a, a $400 <coughs> unexpected expenditure, 600,000 people who are homeless, but many more than that afraid of becoming homeless if they miss their next uh, rent paycheck, rent check. What you've got is a situation that is unsustainable and immoral, the level of economic despair while a tiny, tiny few do so, so well. And you have government policy that consistently does more to make it easier for those who already have to do even better and consistently harder for those who do not have to get into the club or to make it at all. Now, what I have come to realize and what I think most people are waking up to is that that status quo will not disrupt itself. Mm. So the question before us is how are we going to disrupt it? Now, there are going to be a lot of things involved here. Number one, the awakening of the American people to get out of your disengagement, you know, to get out of your, oh, it's not my business, I'm not political, to get out of your cynicism, which is just an excuse for not helping, to realize that if we're going to save our democracy, because the situation I just described, you can't have that and have a democracy. You've already, we've already slipped over into what's called an oligarchy. It's the, the moneyed forces are ruling things here. And we're already seeing the deadly consequences. That's what the train derailment in Ohio was. That's what a bank collapse was. That's what the Willow Project is. It's constantly, whether it's bank in those cases, it was a railroad industry, it was the banking industry, and it was the big oil. These are the forces that continue to have their way. They are of themselves amoral. But amoral, amoral things always lead inevitably to immoral consequences. Because if you're amoral, you just don't care. It's sociopathic. You're just not thinking about people. You're not thinking about animals. You're not thinking about the planet. You're not thinking about our grandchildren. You're just thinking about that economic bottom line. And people can see now, oh my God, we're dying under the weight of this. We're with the Willow Project, for instance. We don't even know if this planet will be habitable for our children. The status quo will not disrupt itself. However, the people whose careers are entrenched in that status quo, their claim is, oh, only us. We're the only grown-ups in the room. We're the ones because we're so entrenched. We're the sophisticated ones. You know, we're the ones who drive us out of this ditch. No, they're the ones who drove us into this ditch. And they are so entrenched within it that I think it is going to be somebody from outside. Like, look at me, guys. I don't have a political career to protect. I'm not standing in line, okay, we won't, we won't primary bill uh, Joe Biden because the DNC says we're not supposed to. And if I do, then I'll be hit by the political establishment. Yeah, like I've been, I understand it. But at this point in my life and in my career, bring it on. If people join with me and help me and support me, otherwise it's just, you know, they're going to have their way and you know, clear the field of anyone who is questioning the way they do business. Yeah, what you described there uh, <coughs> was what I've described in, for many years as the uh, Hunger Games Society elites. And those That's exactly books, right. 
the woman who wrote those books wrote those books very specifically to help wake up the millennial generation and others to the long-term consequences of the path we're on. And you can see it coming more and more and their feigned compassion as they send our people off to war while they drive by as there's well-intentioned voyeurs in their cars looking at the homeless going, gee, um, you know, so. Yeah, it's really too bad. It's really too bad playing their violence. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I Thank you, Michael. Draw... You're right. It is the hunger. You know, that's very well, you know, it's very, very well put. That's, yeah. it is that brutal. It's that brutal, and it's getting there with the censorship. The and it's getting worse. And on. There's a quote that is on your website that I, that I want to draw out because it's really, I think, important for this time. And that is, as our case is new, so we must think anew and act, and act anew. anew. That's Abraham we Lincoln. Must, we must disenthrall ourselves, and then we shall save our country. Abraham Lincoln. Um, he said, "We shall." He said, "We shall nobly save or meanly lose the best, the last best hope on earth." And and your point about waking people up has been very frustrating for for many, including myself, on this political reform journey for the last, for me, almost thirteen plus years now. But I've been reminded by some of my friends in this that they started on it as early as 1977, uh, mm-hmm. and Ross Perot in 1988. Um, but I want to transition in our limited time because I could, we could talk a lot about this, but I want to go to your, you have three featured policies that I'd like to, to give you the opportunity to go into on, on each of these. Let's talk first, if you will, the whole health plan. Can you describe your whole health plan? Well, there are two issues in the whole health plan. First of all, we need universal health care. It is not acceptable that you have Americans rationing their insulin. It is not acceptable that you have the 68,000 people dying every year from lack of health care in the richest country in the world when no other advanced democracy lacks uh, universal health care. That's number one. But number two, and I think this speaks to many of us in the transformational community, we understand that you can't just treat sickness with allopathic remedies. You have to proactively create health. And it's like I had said during the last campaign, we don't have a sickness care system. We have a, excuse me, we don't have a health care system. We have a sickness care system. We have to proactively create health. And there are so many societal factors that mitigate against that. From big ag to big chemical companies to big food companies, where more and more we are withdrawing our support for the vital ingredients that need to be present in food. We are withdrawing our support from so many of the fa- environmental factors, not only which support health, but giving more resources to uh, industries, et cetera, which produce environmental factors that actually hurt our health. This is what happened because of the orgy of deregulation that came about in the 1980s. They exactly, money, money, money. And they said that these were job-killing regulations. They were safety regulations. They were food regulations. When you guys and I were younger, somebody from the FDA could walk into a grocery store and say, this is a known carcinogenic. Get it off the shelf. Today, there's now been a ruling that you would, the, the onus, the burden of proof would be on us 
to prove that it's hurtful on state after state after state. They have whittled the, down the power of the food inspectors to the point where really the most that they can do now is write a very polite letter to the CEO of the company and go, please, sir, would you please consider taking that obvious carcinogen that hurts the brain of a developing child? Please, sir, we don't want to in any way undercut your authority as a great leader and captain of industry, but would you please consider not poisoning our children? And then that CEO and that company whose main goal is to serve their stockholders may or may not say no. This is where you get things like Roundup. This is where you get things like all of these, um, these industries and all of these products which are known carcinogens, which are known environmental toxins in our food, in our earth, and in our air uh, that continue to bring down the health factor of the Americans. We have a much higher chronic disease rate than they do in other advanced nations. And at this point, we ha even have a lower life expectancy. But once again, guys, this isn't gonna change until we get in there and fundamentally change it. This, you know, maybe it'll change a little here. Even with, with uh, my presumed opponent in this area, um, President Biden had said during his campaign, no more drilling on federal lands. Now he has approved the Willow Project, which will be putting 280 million tons of grass uh, of carbon, you know, greenhouse gases into the into the um, into the atmosphere. These are the kinds of things that are not only causing the horrors of climate change, but the horrors of environmental pollution as well. I'd like to move to the to the next topic there of your major issues, your priority issues, and that is the U.S. Department of Children and Youth. And you say here, if an individual neglects a child, we call this unethical at best and criminal at worst. So what do we call a society who collectively neglects millions of our children? When your society's governing principle, as ours now is, is short-term profit maximization for huge corporate entities as opposed to the humanitarian values that should inform our policies, the collateral damage, more than anything, some people say the most greatest collateral damage is the earth. I think the greatest collateral damage is our children. Our children also and our older people. Because anyone who doesn't serve the system is 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 not a goal. So children aren't old enough to vote, so they're not a constituency. They're not old enough to work, so they don't have any financial leverage. So the when you look at factor after factor, American children are not doing well compared to the children in other countries, both in health uh, health uh, statistics as well as education and cultural statistics. And in terms of poverty, we have the greatest pov child poverty rate of any advanced nation. So a, a Department of Childhood and youth, and youth, you know, right now we have one agency uh, within a larger department, but that one agency of families and children is just overwhelmed, overwhelmed in its ability to truly impact the collective state of children. Our children, we, we should make a massive move, a massive move uh, of resources into in the direction of children 10 years and younger. We now know things about how the human brain works in a child in the early childhood that we didn't even know 10 years ago. So we have to front end our resources 
Um, that would include, of course, uh, a, a paid family leave. We know statistically what happens when parents are able to hold a child in their arms during those first few weeks uh, and months of years. The more you allow family members to hold the baby for the first few uh, weeks and months, the far less you will have in terms of societal dysfunction, delinquency, crime, et cetera, later. We know how important those first few weeks and months are. Every public school in America should be a palace of learning and culture and the arts. And we don't have anything like that, particularly in our disadvantaged communities. So when I say we don't have anything like that, we do for a small number of students. And what that does is it just continues to perpetuate this cycle by which, hey, the people who are doing well economically in America and their children are doing fine, while you have this vast sea of people that are not doing fine. So when you go back to that you know, the the, uh, the allopathic medical image, you don't take care of your health, then the old-fashioned model is then when sickness almost inevitably arises, you seek an allopathic way through external remedy to suppress or eradicate the symptom. Well, if you don't proactively create peace and health and people thriving then the inevitable societal dysfunctions will arise and we, we seek to suppress it with bombs and with police and with incarceration. This is immoral, it is wrong, it is undemocratic, and it is unsustainable. One of the tragic results of the, of the overworked population, uh, of the disintegration of the families, is that children are being raised in homes of, of stress and trauma. And there's been significant studies and research that have proven, as you were talking about earlier, the impact of, of a child being held and nurtured and loved in those early days, weeks, and months. But in those early years, if they're in a house with a single parent or a drugged out parent and there's stress and trauma, there's a study called ACEs adverse childhood experiences that I encourage everyone to go look up and the results of that. And we see them all around us with these confrontations because somebody raised in that environment, they are taught to have two reactions to authority, fight or flight. That was their way to survive that environment. And now you put them out <laughs> in the streets and you have most of your police officers come from similar backgrounds. And if you don't adhere right to what they're saying, then you are confronting them. And now you have two people from both trauma situations. Two lives ruined. Multiple and, lives ruined. And that's why you end up in these brutal shootings and others. It's, it's horrific. But they don't talk about this and there's nobody working on the root causes of these. And I so appreciate you bringing it out. And I know we got one more major issue I want to get to. And I know Steve's got some great questions and, and we'll have to pivot. We'll have to have another conversation as we're keeping an eye on the clock for us. But I, the last major priority for you was the working economy. It's such an important. And you say here, taking back our democracy from corporate influence, if they give it to the poor, they call it a handout. They give it to the rich, they call it a subsidy. Well, that's, a, a direct, that's a quote from Martin Luther King. Yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, everything you're saying is so true. And most of the people in our prison system have 
a multiple array of adverse childhood experiences. When I was in college, we had 300,000 people incarcerated in the United States. Now we have 2.3 million. And also, there's a certain number of people that you can have incarcerated with a, within a particular community after which the, the incarceration rate actually increases crime because of all the lives that are destroyed because of the person uh, who the was incarcerated. Yeah. So these, you know, adverse child experiences, I'm not saying that economics is the only factor involved there, but you can't ignore the economic factor that is involved there. If you have a child who goes to a school where they're not taught to read by the age of eight or 10 at the highest, then the chances of high school graduation are drastically decreased and the chances of incarceration are drastically increased. So... Everything from universal health care, including maternal health, everything from an, a guaranteed living wage and a guaranteed job, which something like the Green New Deal would help create. Everything like uh, maternity leave, everything like paid sick, uh, uh, um, guaranteed sick pay, everything like free college. These are the kinds of things that make life bearable for a huge po po portion of our population that is drowning a huge portion of our population, people are shackled. You know, not every chain is visible. You know, when we talked about that neoliberal chapter, what it's done is it's, it's created a, a shrinking of investment in public sphere and an increased privatization. So we've just got a system that just gives the resources of the country ever more into the hands of those who already have wealth. And it's like the old aristocracies, you know, the old landed gentry, except now it's corporations. That's why it's often called the corporatocracy and the money they exert on government. And I'll tell you something, when you start talking about the marriage of government and corporate power, that is the essence of fascism. And that's what's allowed fascism in. So we have a fascist threat at the door. And I'm reminded of a line from uh, Franklin Roosevelt who said, we wouldn't have to worry about a fascist takeover as long as democracy delivered on its blessings. And the problem we have now is that democracy is not delivering on its blessings. And I'm running for president because we better start delivering on its blessings and we don't have time to wait. And for our audience, before we pivot directions, then uh, Steve's got some great questions. I want to remind everybody you, to go to Marianne2024.com. That's Marianne2024.com. And look at the issues that she brings forth so eloquently that need to be on the table and discussed. And then we need to not just talk about them from outside the system, but inside the system. And we'll get into that in a little bit. But I know Steve's dying to ask a question. I appreciate it. I'm living. <laughs> I'm living. <to> answer. <laughs> Thank and you so much. <laughs> Marianne, there was so much that you said that resonated and where you're talking about this distribution of wealth issue, I'm reminded of Arnold Toynbee's analysis of the rise and fall of civilizations. And he said that a sign of a civilization in decline is growing gap between rich and poor. And he said that it wasn't as much an economic issue as it was a moral issue because it meant that this society was not taking care of the least of us. And so I think that there's... that's. I want to talk about a unifying thing that you bring, and I want to talk about a challenge. The unifying thing that I think you bring uh, that perhaps no other Democrat brings is a serious foundation in 
uh, on the spiritual ground of being. Uh, that's not that's been part of your you know it, it's not like imposing religiosity on the people, but it's simply acknowledging that there is this spiritual ground of being. And I think that that was a way that you were able to make a bridge uh, during the last election <coughs> to a certain Christian conservative voters who said, finally, there's somebody over on that side who doesn't believe that only the material world is real. So I think that there's something very significant about that. Now, the divisive issue, I would have to call the elephant and the donkey in the living room. And that has been the COVID uh, crisis and division uh, and separation that's happened over the past three years. And you and I know that there are people in our community who uh, do not did not go along with the official narrative. I myself chose to not get the shot because I looked at all the facts and I went, it's not for me, not for my well-being. Uh, well, of course, I was deplatformed by people. I was uh, I was told by the media that I should be put in jail. I actually heard people say that we should be executed. So what we're now dealing with, and this includes people who are identified as progressives too, what we're now dealing with is an, an intensified polarized narrative where on one side we have the uh, uh, DeSantis who is um, banning books, uh, you know, basically imposing this right-wing Christianist format on everything. But on the other side, and I have to say that I'm, I'm very well aware of that, on the other side, there's been this censorship, there's been a uniformity of, uh, of belief, people going along with that, not questioning, never a conversation that brought both sides together, but always a conversation where each side had its own narrative and there was no conversation in between. So I'm thinking that you have the opportunity because I think you also recognize the value of holistic health, a lot of which was deplatformed intentionally during the COVID uh, crisis. It was as a um, collateral damage. Um, you have several things going for you. First of all, you have this foundation in universal spirituality, <laughs> recognizing that we all we all are united at the heart, and you recognize that as part of a le uh, lineage and tradition. You also have the background in recognizing that we have to move past all of these uh, simply allopathic medicine, simply pharmaceuticals, and include other things. And then you also have the, uh, the economic program, which all of the populace over on the Republican side would go for were it not for the divisive cultural issues. That's exactly that right. Two political parties insist on ginning up their base. How do you breach this gap? Because if you can, then you really have a chance. You know, Jesus says in the New Testament, I stand in the breach. I don't think you, you just stand in it. You stand in the place which is the breach, uh, which closes the breach, just by, by where you live. You know, Rumi said, out beyond all ideas of good and bad, right and wrong, there is a field. I'll meet you there. In The Course in Miracles, it says, God does not give you victory in battle. He lifts you above the battlefield. Uh, yesterday, I did an interview on Fox News, and obviously, um, I, it was with um, Neil Cavuto. Uh, who tends to be a gentleman. But obviously, in addition to that, obviously I, I came in with uh, political views that are different than his. But The Course in Miracles says people hear you on the level you speak from. And I felt both of us 
showed each other mutual respect and honor. And that's, that's where we need to live. You know, in a free society, we don't all have to agree. Einstein said that there are high-minded conservative principles and high-minded liberal principles. None of us have a monopoly on the truth. It's a quality of personhood that uh, closes the gap, that heals the breach. It's a quality of personhood where you are standing in conviction about what you believe, but you are saluting in your own energy the, the honorable, noble, human truth of the person who's standing in front of you. And when we stand on that ground, then we can have all kinds of debate. It doesn't break down because it's not personally mean. That's what's happened. People are mean. And like you said, on the left as well as on the right. I mean, it's, you know, we all have to look inside our hearts to, to route out the inner authoritarian inside all of us. But that's, and that's really where the personal meets the collective. You know, Gandhi said the end is inherent in the means. If we are mean-spirited, we're not going to help create a more peaceful world. That's a good place to be, the breach there, because then you have the opportunity to bring people forth in conversation um, so that there can be mutual understanding and even cooperation. <laughs> There's another line from Martin Luther King that I think is very relevant there. He said, you have very little morally persuasive power with people who can feel your underlying contempt. So you have to actually, when you walk into the room, dear God, clear me of my self-righteousness, clear me of my belief that I'm smarter than they are, that my politics are better, they're just a bunch of whatever. You have to just ask that all that be cleared. And then you're coming from a place of power, including the power to possibly persuade someone of the, of the veracity of our moral argument. You know, when you were talking before, uh, when Michael was talking about economics, Adam Smith, who was the main articulator of free market capitalism, said free market capitalism cannot work outside an ethical context. That's where the correction has to begin, in our adherence to ethical and moral principle. From that, we can have all kinds of debate about the best way to effectuate that which serves the people and serves the good of all, all humanity. But without that center that unites us all, it's very difficult to have conversations that actually will get us anywhere. Marianne, you uh, just articulated in the last couple of minutes exactly the principles behind the, the founding of a new party here in California that I've been working on, the Common Sense Party that Tom Campbell is the chairman of. Uh, with the exact principles that it's about getting quality people into office, uh, allowing everyone to hold on to their own beliefs. Whatever principles brought you to want to wear the label Democrat, Republican, Libertarian, whatever, that's fine. But come forth in conversation with curiosity, with open-mindedness, with respect to others, we summarize it in three words, responsible, open, and inclusive, uh, that you've demonstrated that in your life story, in your actions, because words are irrelevant without actions that mirror those. Um, and that's where we're launching. We have over 30,000 members right now in California, the Common Sense Party. We just uh, formed an alliance 
with the Ford Party and Andrew Yang and his book, The War on Normal People, what you've said to articulate the devastation that is going on in our culture, his book, The War on Normal People, documents and furthers that same point. And yet those politicians who are representing these two parties represent the leadership of these parties and the special interests behind them, not the people. And it's best leaving an issue unresolved because it motivates their base to come out to vote and it motivates their donors. And that's why we don't see these issues being solved because the lack of incentives and the good people who run for office have to adhere to what leadership tells them or because the way the rules are written, they have no chance of getting elected. We believe strongly that as soon as there is a viable new party based on principles, not any orthodoxy, the good people that did run for office and get elected, as soon as they have an option to get reelected, they will be able to stand up to leadership, do what their heart tells them is the right thing to do, do what they've told their constituents they were willing to do and what their constituents expect. Then they'll have a way to get reelected by doing the right thing, not by being beholden to the leadership of these two existing parties. I encourage you at some point to consider this uh, opportunity to uh, to run as a common sense Democrat uh, and and help promote. I think I am. You understand. <laughs> I think I am running as a common sense Democrat, and I would encourage you to consider endorsing my candidacy. Uh, it's a why yeah. you're here, girl. Yeah, thank you, <laughs> thank you, because it's a transitional it's a transitional process to get to the point where a third party, as American is, is, is currently constituted, um, will be electing a third party person. Uh, Andrew has said to me, and by the way, War on Normal People is a great book. I read it during the 2020 campaign. Uh, Andrew has already generously uh, given to my campaign, um, and it, it, they're not planning to have a presidential candidate, and I hope that you will consider endorsing mine, uh, because ultimately it should not be about our party, it should be about the things that you've said. Well, we're, the timing is getting right uh, Thank you. for this change. I hope you consider uh, this conference, uh, INC 23, uh, if you haven't uh, considered that, to, to uh, be a speaker there. I think it would be a great opportunity for many people to hear uh, the type of collaboration that is necessary. And where yeah. we will have representatives from the Ford Party uh, and from the Common Sense Party there because we exemplify our relationship, the type of relationship that multi-party democracy needs, and that's close collaboration based on principles uh, and yet allowing for individual differences. And people criticize forward and common sense because we don't come out with quote platform like your particular platform issues because we believe that the organization should only establish principles and it's up to the candidates to go into the specifics of details and then it's up to the voters to choose this candidate over another candidate on the issues but the party guarantees the principles uh and that's I where a, a bottom-up yeah. policy yeah. rather than a top-down policy. Yeah. Well, I, I don't know if I've received an invitation to that, but if I do, I certainly will look at it, of course. And thank you so much for telling me about it. Yeah. We'll do Steve, that. do you have any last questions before no, we I, I, Before you ask your final question, I want to thank you so much, Marianne, for um, 
being willing to be in that breach uh, to be able to hold that container for people to engage heart to heart and come up with, uh, uh, as, we, as we say on our show, uh, seeking the whole truth together. And I also want to say that as a common sense Democrat or independent Democrat, you're bringing something <laughs> to the Democratic Party that nobody else right now is bringing. So I think that that's very important for people who are recognizing that, you know, it's, the Democratic Party, let's face it, it's been like the Peanuts cartoon where Lucy pulls away the football every time Charlie Brown tries to kick it. Exactly what it's been. That's a perfect image. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's we, a perfect sad image. but true. <laughs> sad but true. So you have well, the... Well, help me, you know, help me uh, get elected and we're going to change some of that. We will. Michael, you got one last question, right? Yeah. Marianne, I want to close the show with, with this. I want to ask you this. Uh, uh, please describe for us what is that most beautiful and just world that your heart knows is possible? One in which people feel permitted and invited to spread their wings, to become all that they can possibly be in this lifetime, to completely actualize their God-given potential, where they not only know that that is limitless, but where they feel that other people and the factors of the society around them actually support them in that effort. And that from that place, which can only be a heart-centered place, we find each other at ever deeper levels. And from that unlimited creativity, unlimited productivity, um, and unlimited joy and peace will emerge. That's the world that I see in my mind's eye but which I know that it is ours to co-create with God. There is an old rabbinical saying, you are not expected to complete the task, but neither are you permitted to abandon it. Mm. Thank you. That's beautiful. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And unfortunately, uh, we're out of time today. We'll, we'll hopefully we'll get Marianne back for some more in-depth conversation. And if you're watching on YouTube or listening on our audio podcast, please subscribe, please like, and of course, please share with your friends and family. And if you would and I hope, <laughs> I hope anybody who does feel moved, uh, who feels that this conversation should be out there as part of a presidential campaign, I hope people will not um, forget that even a $5 donation, $3 donation, $10 donation does make a difference. This is not a corporate-backed campaign. It's only if we ourselves participate that we can have it out there and make it real. So thank you. Thank you so much for letting me add that piece of information. And with that, we must say goodbye, Steve. Well, thank you so much, Marianne. And uh, we will uh, see you on the trail. I love and you guys. We'll thank interview, you. We'll continue with this conversation because, you know, your voice needs to be amplified uh, in the midst of all of this uh, dueling dualities and uh, and culture wars. This is thank the voice you. that needs to be heard, a unifying voice. So thank, thank you God so much for having the courage for doing what you're doing. Thank you, guys. Oh. Much love. Okay. So from political battlefields to cooperative playing fields, it's a long journey to the more beautiful and just world our hearts know is possible. Let's go there together. Thank you so much. Thank you.